and we're going to read through the rest of chapter one. Why don't you stand with me as we read the word together? Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the Lord or the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him and the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of his glory of the inheritance of his of in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which has worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principalities and powers and mights and dominion at, at every name that is, in, that is named, not only in the age, but also in which is to come. And he has put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. You may be seated. Lord, we thank you so much for your word in this day and the opportunity we have to gather in your name. We pray that today you would speak to us through your word. Lord, you'd lead us in your ways, make us more like you. <laughs> Lord, we, we continue to lift up those who are sick or hurting. Lord, we, we pray for Beth. Pray that you touch and heal her, Lord. Pray for Greg. Ask that you would heal our brother. Been in the hospital for almost six months now. Lord, we pray for Bob Voorhees. Would you touch him? Draw him to yourself, Lord. Lord, I pray today for Ken Meyer and his family. As Ken is even here in New Jersey right now visiting from Austria to be with his family as his dad is sick, I pray that you might strengthen their family, Lord, in this time. Let this trip be a blessing to him and to his dad and his mom and sister. Be with them, Lord. And Lord, we especially want to lift up the situation going on in the world today, Lord, the, the war between Russia and Ukraine. Lord, we pray for those who are suffering in, in Ukraine, Lord. We pray, Lord, for the many different pastors and missionaries that we hear report from, Lord. We pray your protection over them and their surrounding towns, Lord. Lord, we confess that in the midst of all this, that, that many can become fearful. We pray that you would address the fears, Lord, and help us understand and know that you are on the throne. You are in control. We put our trust and our hope in you. We pray that your name would be lifted high, and that people would come to know you, turning to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. <clears throat> it's a great privilege, as always, to be together, to study the Word of God together. Uh, as Colin read, we are in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, finishing the chapter today, continuing our study through <clears throat> this letter to the church of Ephesus, written by Paul. Over the last couple weeks, we've been studying through some foundational uh, doctrines, a doctrine of salvation, and we talked about uh, you know, election and uh, predestination and some of these things that we can, our heads could spin over at times. But 
the doctrine being salvation and this being so foundational as we build upon this and, and now spring forward into um, this prayer by Paul over the church of Ephesus. And we want to be reminded in the midst of that, that this letter was put into circulation. And as we studied already, uh, this letter very much so is a letter written to the church, not just the church of Ephesus, but it is for us still today. It was for many churches surrounding that area and was passed on and is still for us today. So as we would read and study this in Ephesians 1, this prayer of Paul over the church of Ephesus, let this be a prayer over us, over our church, over our lives. But we're going to look at several things today of this prayer and beginning, of course, with verse 15. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. So uh, we, as good Bible scholars, of course, when we see therefore, as I've learned since I was a young child from many different pastors, my dad especially, when we see therefore in the Bible, we ask the question, what is it therefore? Wow, you guys are good. We know when we see therefore, it is a transition word. So that means we have to look back and connect it to the next text as well. And so we look back, we are reminded of these doctrines that we discussed. Uh, And so as Paul says, therefore, building on the foundation of these truths, the foundation of these doctrines, and the fact that these doctrines are relevant to you as believers in Jesus Christ, now, because of that, let us have another, a further conversation. And because of that, I make mention of you in my prayers. Because of that, because of these relevant doctrines, because you're living your life in Christ, I can't help but thank God. And so as he says, therefore, he's saying, since I have heard, Therefore, I also have heard, so since I have heard, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that after all these doctrines are relevant to you, and that you are in Christ, you are in relationship, you are in fellowship, you are walking in redemption, you have trusted and believed and been sealed by the Holy Spirit, and now that you walk by faith, I have heard the news that you Walk by faith and not by sight. That you take steps of faith. It's about your faith. Your faith is evidence that as we've been looking at so far here in this chapter, faith is evidence that you are in Christ. Your fellowship with Jesus will be evident by your faith, by your steps of faith and your walk by faith and that you live by faith. We can all say, yeah, I'm I'm a Christian, but yet we are not changed by the word of God, but yet we are not walking by faith and we are caught up in, in walking by sight and living only with the things that we can get our hands on and, and experience right here in front of us. We get caught up in those things. But it's, a dem- it's not a demonstration of faith in that. A demonstration of faith is walking by faith and not by sight. So he's, he's heard of their faith. This is good. This is a good evidence to see. And the next he says, and your love for the saints. Your love for all the saints. And so this great evidence of the fact that you are in Christ is your faith and your love. As this would be a word, a prayer over the church, as it is a prayer over the church of Ephesus, and we would desire it to be a prayer over our lives as, the, as part of the body of Christ, then let that be the evidence, our faith and our love. 
Our faith in Jesus Christ, which is about that relationship and fellowship, and our love for one another. Jesus said, by this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Are we known by our faith, and are we known by our love? Or are we just known by, oh, you're that religious person that goes to church on Sundays? Or you're, you're, the, you're just... You, you just have higher morals, better morals than the rest of us. Or whatever, fill in the blank. Or are we known by our faith and our love for the saints? This is a mark of the church. And notice that he says all the saints. This is Paul once again bringing this attention to the Jews, the Gentiles, and all believers. It's not just love for your little people group. It's not just love for your little circle of friends. It's not just love for your congregation as we're here together. It's not just love for your denomination. It's love for the saints, all the saints, whether Jew or Gentile. And that's the word that Paul is giving. It doesn't matter if you're of the Jews and a Jewish believer and you're of the Gentiles and a Gentile believer, but the evidence of the fact that they have been in Christ is clear and that they have this great love. And what does that great love look like? Well, we studied it in our first week in Ephesians that the church of Ephesus planted other churches The church of Ephesus was known clearly by their love. They they sent people out. They showed love for other churches within the body of Christ and not just for themselves, not just looking inward. And their love was evident. Faith and love do not earn us participation in God's great work. They are evidence that we are in Christ. We want to be in Christ. Amen. Be in Christ, which means you will have a living faith, as James talks about, and you'll be known by your love for the body of Christ, your love for the people around you. And so because of this, Paul says, verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, Because of the clear evidence of your relationship with Jesus Christ, because of the clear evidence that there is faith and there is love, I thank God. I do not cease to thank God for you and make mention of you in my prayer. I do not cease. He does not stop. That means every time he prays, and Paul is a guy who prays, he understands the importance of prayer. And whenever he's praying, he doesn't stop. He can't help but make mention of them. He can't help but thank God for them. And it makes me kind of think for a moment, what am I thankful for? What am I thankful for? What are you thankful for? And we would all agree there's many things to be thankful for. Our family, our friends, our, our provisions, our homes, our, our jobs, Food on the table, we, you know, we pray for our meals and we thank you, God, for this food. If we forget to thank God for the food at the dinner table, then our kids are going to make sure we know, you didn't say, you didn't say thanks for the food. I'm sorry, I was just caught up in prayer, okay? I'm thanking God for who he is. I'm thanking God for his son who died on the cross for me. That's good, right? These are all things to be thankful for. But we have to remember, it's almost become just this empty ritual of thank you, God, for the food. Amen. Let's eat. It's good to be thankful for those things. It's good to be thankful for our families and our friends. But these aren't spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, are they? Now, our relationship with Jesus Christ, the hope that we have of eternity, that's the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. And Paul is thankful for something that is so eternal, and that is their faith. And their love. And as I look around the room, there's nothing greater than to see the body of Christ walking with Jesus and loving one another. Jesus prayed for that, that the body of Christ would be one. 
showing love for one another, serving one another. So Paul sets this great example of giving thanks for the body of Christ, giving thanks for their faith, giving thanks for the the work that God is doing in their lives. And I, I just challenge you today, ask yourselves the question, what am I thankful for? Not that you can't be thankful for all so many things, but are we truly thankful for the fruit that we would see in the lives around us? Are we truly thankful for someone else's faith? Will we look at somebody and say, I am thankful for your faith? Sometimes we can say, I'm thankful that somebody, if they didn't believe, oh boy, we'd be in big trouble. It'd be causing big problems. And Paul got that perspective because he once was a non-believer who was causing big problems. But now here he is thanking God because of their belief, because of their faith, because of their love for one another. They are fulfilling the purpose of the body of Christ. That is something to be thankful for. Giving love and grace toward one another. So the rest of this here, as Paul is saying, because of the clear evidence of your relationship with Jesus, I thank God for you. And thanks is the introduction to Paul's prayer. The rest of this here in this passage of verses 17 through 23, we're going to get into that prayer over the church, the body of Christ. A prayer that is for growth and a prayer that is for greater spiritual strength. You know, Paul not only preaches and disciples and plants churches, Paul understands the importance of prayer. He understands the importance of prayer over the church. It's following the example that Jesus set in John 17. Verses 15 and 16 here are the intro to prayer. And now, in these following verses, we're going to look at seven points of what Paul prayed over the church. Being reminded once again that this is a prayer not just over the church of Ephesus, but over us today as well. So let this be a prayer over our church, over the body of Christ, over us as a group of believers today. Verse 17 That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Number one we're going to look at, and there's three in this first couple verses, but number one, it starts with revelation. Now there's two kinds of revelation that are oftentimes discussed. One is an internal revelation. An internal revelation is this within our own minds, within our own efforts. It is something that is gained through work, through study. An internal revelation, you you go to school, you study hard, you work hard, and you have a revelation that is based on what you're studying. And that happens sometimes as we study the scriptures, right? We work hard, we dig deep, and then there's a revelation of it. There's also an external revelation. It's not within ourselves. It is outside of ourselves. And an external revelation is gained only through relationship. And that's what what Paul is talking about here. You can work hard and you can study hard and you can have a revelation that comes through the scriptures, but sometimes you are even studying the scriptures and you might read a verse over and over and be like, I don't know what this means. I have no idea what this is saying here. And then as you're just seeking the Lord and drawing near to the Lord in relationship, the light bulb comes on. Aha, I get it. There's a revelation that is outside of ourselves. This revelation that Paul is talking about here, we referenced it last week as we spoke of the mystery of the gospel. Not the type of mystery that we can't solve, but a mystery that is being revealed to us. And this revelation is all about relationship with Jesus Christ. This revelation is through experiencing him. It comes back to knowing him. 
so that we may know the mystery of the gospel. Now, this revelation is all about knowing God. So that brings us to our next point, which is knowledge, as it says there in verse 17. Knowledge comes through this revelation. And the word here is about an experiential knowledge and not just a head knowledge, not just cramming your brain with more knowledge. We can do that, and some of you guys, maybe you, you have a master's degree or you have your doctorate in whatever, fill in the blank, and you've been to tons of school, way more than I would like to go to, but you're there, and you've got all this knowledge, and you've worked hard at this knowledge, and that's all well and good. But there's something of an experience that gives you greater knowledge, isn't there? You can read books, you can study books, you can learn a lot about what a book has to say on a certain topic. And there is knowledge based on that. But there's greater knowledge when you experience it for yourself. The learning experience, right? Some of us might say that we are hands-on learners. I'm one of those. When you get a package of something and you have to assemble it, I'll oftentimes put the instruction manual on the side and be like, oh, this is easy. And then the experience that I have would tell me I should have read the instruction manual. But I learn a lot of how this thing is made uh, because I have experienced it in many ways. But if I just have the instruction manual and I'm just reading, I would come away and be like, oh yeah, I think I know how to put that thing together, whatever it is and wherever the pieces are. I have to have the pieces to experience it. This knowledge comes through experience. This knowledge comes through revelation that is from God outside of ourselves. And it is not just a knowledge of God, but it is knowing him personally. Having a personal relationship with Jesus, that's what this chapter has been all about, being in Christ Knowing him personally is knowing the way, the truth, and the life. Three things that we would sum up many of our questions into. What what am I supposed to do with my life? Well, Jesus is the way. If we know him, we know the way. I need help. I I, I don't know what the truth is. There's so many lies and deceits being thrown at me from all over the world. How am I supposed to figure out what the truth is? Know Jesus, because Jesus is the truth and will reveal the truth to us. I'm afraid, I have fear. What what about my life, my livelihood? How am I gonna take care of myself? Know Jesus, because he is the life. Put the effort into knowing him personally. And this knowledge, as it says, is that the Father of glory may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. So knowing him, it comes through revelation. Knowing him, it comes from experience with him. And it is that we might glorify him. The more we get to know him, the more we will glorify him. It's the same with any relationship. Sometimes the more you get to know somebody, the more you're like, eh, maybe I'll try to distance myself a little bit. Maybe that's not a healthy relationship. The more, or the more you get to know somebody, the more you want to know that person. When it comes to Jesus, the more we get to know him, the more we will want to know him, and the more we will naturally glorify him. If we're lacking in glorifying Christ, then we don't really know him, do we? We're not really experiencing him. If our lives are not glorifying him, then we're lacking in our experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ. So we have revelation, that brings knowledge that then leads to number three, wisdom. 
wisdom as it's spoken of here in verse 17, but further into verse 18, it says, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Enlightenment. This is a wisdom. Now, if you take the word here, as it says, it's the spirit of wisdom, speaking of a spiritual wisdom that is not of this world, but is from above. Wisdom that is from the spirit of God, wisdom from above. And James writes about that. In James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. You don't have to turn there, but if you'd like to, you can take note of it. James 3, 13 to 18, it says this. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct what, he, what his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your heart, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Clearly, there is a difference between earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. James makes that very clear. And Paul is speaking of this same wisdom. The spirit of wisdom, the spirit that is from above, this wisdom that comes from above. And this is the prayer over the church. Because the church desperately needs heavenly wisdom. But we have crammed so much earthly wisdom into the church today. So much of the wisdom that the world has to offer, we try to take it and we try to fit it into the church. All around, this is what we see. And by the church, I mean the body of Christ. I mean our own lives. Yeah, maybe corporately the church. And that's happening. Much of the church has gotten so much about business that they miss out on true spiritual wisdom sometimes. But how about for us personally and individually? And we're going to go seek for earthly wisdom sometimes to answer our questions, to try to address our fears or our anxieties. Bitter envy and self-seeking, that's earthly wisdom. This wisdom does not descend from above. It is sensual and demonic. And every evil thing comes out of it. You want to know what the problem is in the world today? Why, why is, is Russia attacking Ukraine? Because of earthly wisdom. It is demonic. Why are we so, so many people so full of fear over, you name it, I mean, we, we, people are somehow just getting over the coronavirus now after two years. And there, there's been so much fear, and I just said this week, I said it's interesting that fear drove so many people away from the church, and now I've talked to pastors over the last two weeks, and their churches are full, because fear is driving people right back into the church over the potential of what's going on in the world right now. But are we going to be driven one way or another to or from church or, or, or just in our fears that would run wild over earthly wisdom? It's demonic. Earthly wisdom is under the influence of the devil. So it all makes sense when you look around. You're like, I can't believe this. What's going on in the world? Oh, it's earthly wisdom. But... On the contrary, and everything of heavenly wisdom is totally contrary to earthly wisdom. It is first pure, without blemish, without spot. It is pure, it is perfect, and then peaceable. Peace. Heavenly wisdom brings peace because it's not about earth, is it? It's about eternity, it's about the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. It is peaceable. It is gentle. Gentle. Gentleness is one of those things that most people don't think is valuable in this world. 
willing to yield, full of mercy, full of good fruits. Now, that's, that's a way we can gauge whether it's earthly or it's heavenly wisdom. What does the fruit look like? And inspecting the fruit of our lives and of what we do, if something terrible comes out of a decision that we make and it's bad fruit, we shouldn't blame our circumstance. We should blame our earthly wisdom. Because if we used heavenly wisdom to make our decisions, then it would be good fruit. Without partiality and without hypocrisy. Guys, this is the prayer over the body of Christ, over the church. And so much in the church, we see the opposite of these things. What does that mean? That means we have allowed for earthly wisdom to rule in our lives. If we're, if we're, if we're having partiality, then we need to check ourselves if we're treating certain people a special way because of the way they dress or look, and, and James addresses all of that as well. If we're, if we're walking in hypocrisy, check ourselves. We've allowed earthly wisdom to rule. Now added to this, now we, if we take the words here that are given as knowledge, revelation, and then a word further, it's talking about enlightenment and understanding. This understanding is, is understanding plus knowledge equals wisdom, right? We take our knowledge and we add to it and we begin to understand it. Now we can apply it and that's wisdom. Again, if you've gone to school for so many years and you have a degree in whatever the field may be, but you're not using it, then that's not wisdom of applying your knowledge. You're not taking what you're learning and using it. So what is it really for? Taking the word of God and taking the wisdom of God and just... Learning and filling ourselves, well, Paul addresses that. He says, knowledge alone, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Paul says, for I have determined not to know anything among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. The experiential knowledge, knowing Jesus and him crucified, and not being caught up in just filling my head with knowledge because that makes me prideful. But taking that, adding to it, understanding, applying it to, to, to live in wisdom. Wisdom includes understanding and wisdom includes enlightenment. And the word for enlightenment here is spiritually to be ingrained with saving knowledge. So going back to, again, knowing Jesus... This saving knowledge of having a relationship with him, wisdom comes from that. And on our own, we have nothing to offer. Our wisdom is useless. We're in fact called the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God uses the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise of the world. But yet we have wisdom because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. The more we dig into his word of God, the word of God, then the more wisdom we have, the ability to tap into. All of this points back to knowledge, which is the experiential knowledge, knowing Jesus and having relationship with him. Wisdom comes from knowledge, which includes understanding and enlightenment, and knowledge comes from a revelation. Now, Wait, there's more. Verse 18 says further, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. Number four is hope. The hope of his calling. Now, as we talk about hope, we're, it's not like a magical hope. We're not talking about this magical, you know, Disney World kind of hope, which is 
we think super awesome, isn't it, right? And some of you guys are like, no, Disney's the devil. Whatever, it's fun. <laughs> but this hope is nothing of this world, and Paul addresses that right in the beginning of the chapter as we studied a few weeks ago, this, this blessing, this spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is the hope that we have, and hope, it guides us. Right? Hope is literally the thing that guides us. It gives us purpose. If we don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we have no hope. I'm sorry to tell you, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you don't have a guide. What do you have to look forward to? Hope gives us an eternal perspective. It points us toward eternal life, freedom from sin, and victory. There's great hope in that. The word hope is an expectation of coming good. There is expectation in it because it has nothing to do with this world. Hope gives us purpose because we know what we're living for. Now it says, the hope of his calling. So what is his calling? We studied it not long ago in John chapter 21. His calling, Jesus calls Peter Gives him a calling. Jesus calls the disciples. And what is the calling? Follow me. Follow Jesus. Be in Christ. Is to follow him and to walk with him. To have fellowship with him. That is the hope of his calling. The hope that we have is relationship with Jesus Christ. It will guide us and it will give us purpose fellowship with Jesus Christ. Next up in verse 18, we see then, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Number five, riches. Riches of the glory of his inheritance. And when we talk about riches here, I'm reminded of our study last week when we talked all about God's economy. And we talked about the riches of his grace and how his grace is a complete embarrassment of riches. That he can bring people from death to life is an embarrassment of riches. And there's the riches of his grace. And now added to that are the riches of the glory of his inheritance. What is his inheritance? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 32 Verse 8 and 9 says this, When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. His people are his portion. He, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, he's talking about the inheritance of land that he is giving to the nations of Israel. And now, he said, but the Lord's portion, it's people. His portion is his people. His inheritance is his people. Amazing to think that God makes riches out of us. We are his riches. We are the riches of his inheritance. And that sounds like, man, that's pretty lame. Why would he want that? Because of the riches of his grace. Because he has invested so much into us, into people, then we are the riches of his inheritance. Because of the embarrassment of riches that he has put into us, then we are glorious before him. We are acceptable before him. Remember I said it last week? He spent it all in one place. People. God spent the glory of his riches, the riches of his grace, all in one place. And that makes us a glorious inheritance him but it's through relationship with him 
He makes his saints a glorious inheritance for himself, which shows further by this embarrassment of riches of his grace and spending all of his grace in one place and making us a glorious inheritance somehow It shows how much God genuinely and greatly desires fellowship with us. The price that he paid. As we talked about last week, his blood, his grace, that we would be a glorious inheritance. Further, verse 19 Number six, we'll get into here. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? Number six is power. There is power. Within knowing God, there is power, and knowing his power is important. Now, this is not a power that we possess for ourselves to do what we want with it. This is a power that is all about, verse 20 says it, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. This is resurrection power. That's what Paul is talking about. Paul is praying over the church that they would know the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Not the healing power, not the, the overcoming, you know, take on anybody and do whatever you want and have magical powers. Because that's sometimes what people think in the church. And they'll take this prayer over the church as the idea that we possess this power to do whatever we want. And we can conjure up this, this magical, mystical power from within ourselves? No. This power is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is a power that points back to an experiential knowledge of knowing Jesus and understanding the resurrection. His power is for us to know and experience. And with power comes victory. We like the sound of that. What's the victory over? Over sin and death. Over the sting of death. Pointing us back to hope. We don't have to sorrow without hope. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is in us and is available to us as believers in Jesus Christ. Not as some magic genie in a bottle. And we often will do that. We'll call upon God when things are difficult, when we need some sort of miracle. But do we call on God to change our lives? Do we tap into the power of God for resurrection in victory to bring us from death to life from sorrow to joy from addiction to victory to from pride to humility we don't want to pray for that one do we from unbelief to belief from anger maybe you're mad at god to trust, to submission. Do we tap into the power of God to overcome in our lives? Not to just overcome our circumstance, to fix things. It's there to change us. That power that's available to us further, as it says, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in, the, in that which is to come. This is a power that is far above any other power or principality in this entire world, both present and forevermore. It's a power that never runs out. Not like the Energizer Bunny, mind you. (laughs) Because they eventually run out. 
Even the idea in, in the world today is getting, having this idea of sustainable power. And the world can't quite really wrap their, their mind around it and can't grasp at it quite yet, right? Whether it's wind or whether it's solar or whatever it might be, they're trying to figure it out. But there's always a lack of power in, the, in earthly terms. But we're talking about a power that is resurrection power Not only a resurrection power, but also took Christ and placed him on the throne. From the place of total humiliation, he was put in a he was hung on a cross and buried in a tomb, and then took him and placed him on a throne. On the throne in heaven. That's incredible power, and that power, we are told, is for the ages to come. It wasn't even just for Jesus to raise from the dead or ascend to heaven and be seated on the throne. But as a demonstration of the power that we have the ability to walk in the resurrection power forever until we see him seated on that throne. That power will never run out It raised Christ from the dead. It placed him on the throne. Jesus has power over all angelic beings, over all the earth, which brings us now to our final point, number seven. We'll read here in verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Number seven is the authority of Christ. All of these things will fall under the authority of Christ. All of the doctrine that has been studied throughout here that Paul has presented to the church to be learned and to walk in an understanding of, most importantly, Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is the head of the church. And now we have seen historically in the church throughout the last hundreds of years, people will try to make authoritative claims of some of the doctrines that we have studied even over the last couple weeks of predestination and election. And they'll make authoritative claims over the church and sometimes would be looked at as look at ahead of the church whether it be a pope or someone else that's been put into these headship roles, but there is only one head of the church, and that is Jesus Christ. Paul writes this letter from a position of authority. He is looked up to as an authoritative leader in the early church and to specifically the church of Ephesus and the surrounding churches that had branched out from the church of Ephesus. But yet he says, let's make this very, very clear. I am not the head of the church. I'm not the head of your church or the surrounding churches or or a group of churches. Jesus is the head of the church. And it's only going back to Jesus and our relationship with Jesus Christ that we will understand any of this doctrine and how it applies to us in our own lives. God has placed all things under his feet. And after all this doctrine that was discussed, Paul reminds us it's Jesus. It's always Jesus. And with Jesus as the head of the church, Jesus must be the center of our focus. Not man. Not ever. Our pastors, our elders and leaders here at the church, we've simply answered a call to shepherd under the good shepherd, Jesus himself. As a church, we're constantly reminding ourselves that Christ is the head and needs to be the center. Sometimes we can get caught up in all the different churchy things, events and different ministry groups and all the things. that They're all good. Nothing wrong with them. They're wonderful. 
We give opportunity for people to come together and be blessed and minister to. Praise the Lord. But even just recently, I asked the question to our our group of elders and our staff and said, let's identify why we do what we do. Let's take a step back. Let's evaluate who we are in Christ. And let's, let's move forward in that. Let's make sure we recognize Christ to be the head of the church and Christ to be the center of our lives. He being the head and we, the church, it says, is his body. His body, meaning we are joined with him. Everything goes back to him. You think about the human body. Everything that we do is done through signals that are sent back to the brain, which then our brain tells our, my hands, I move my hands a lot, right? You guys have noticed that, I'm sure, by now. I don't just do that involuntarily. My brain is sending a signal to my hands to move. We are joined with Christ. He's the head, and he makes things move. He's the one who makes things happen. The church being his body, it's all believers. Addressing again, Jew, Gentile, past, present, future. All believers. We are joined to Christ and important, we are joined together in Christ. Closing with this thought, bringing together these seven points of the prayer over the church. Revelation brings knowledge that leads to wisdom, that gives us hope because of God's glorious riches and power under the authority of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.